This is the Art of Darkness podcast with Kevin Kautzman and Brad Kelly. We're a couple of very online writers interested in the dark side of what drives creative people to create against all odds. This show is about art and the people who make it, what it costs them, and what it takes to bring something unique and impactful into the world. Each episode, we excavate the life and work of an artist you might think you know. Don't worry, they're all safely dead. On every episode, we try and find out just what the hell was wrong with them and how they worked through their darkness to create something that lives on after them and continues to move culture. Find us online at artofdarkpod.com and on Twitter at artofdarkpod. We are back with another Dark Room episode. Um, this is very exciting because we are going back to our first subject. Maybe the person who you could call the patron saint uh, of the Art of Darkness podcast. Um, the great William. What is it, Kevin? William Seward. 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 Burrows. Like the neighborhood <laughs> in Minneapolis. <laughs> like Not Seward. We yeah. were joking on the first episode, yeah, course, right? Obviously. For those people yeah. who are going <laughs> all the way back into the back whenever, catalog. Whenever we get something wrong, it's a joke. Mm, uh, so, yes, yeah. Indeed. Just keep Brad, that Brad, I'm, <laughs> I'm aiming my finger here. Uh, I could see the, was it a low ball or a shot glass? What was it on her head? I can't remember. Oh, yeah, oh no. Yeah, oh, Brad's yeah. dead. Okay. Well, and I'm muting him. <laughs> uh, okay uh, okay i'm gonna let him uh, he's gonna unmute himself here okay we're joking of course <laughs> oh, okay there i'm back oh, okay he's back. okay all yeah right. so so we're going to uh yeah we're, we're going we're we're retreading that ground but as i think people who listen to the show know that that the 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 burrows rabbit hole is many rabbit holes first of all and all of them appear to be bottomless so this is this is a great he's come up to... time and time again tennessee mm -hmm. williams francis mm -hmm. bacon it just uh yeah he keeps coming up that period in tangier was mm -hmm. uh, a moment in time for, for, sure. for sure yeah absolutely mm -hmm. so so yeah so we're going to um oh and first i guess quick plugs um artofdarkpod.com twitter.com slash artofdarkpod uh patreon.com slash art of dark pod for bonus <laughs> after dark content um mm -hmm. yeah, very important yes and what what else we get the telegram Kevin. what's the telegram url it's uh t.me slash art of dark pod okay yeah and that's getting bigger and funner and more fun and cool mm -hmm. this is the cool spot to hang out people are yeah it's, music it's and lively we're sharing and... yeah it's a chance to get in get at us you could torture brad on twitter he handles that account uh <laughs> yeah, yeah we, we're having a lot of fun and of course we've got the uh, readers club coming up 2023 we've got a lot of exciting stuff going on every patreon subscriber uh gets access to the after dark episodes we always do an additional 20 30 minutes at least after every episode including this one so please do support the show we have a goal for 2023 half a crowley we want 333 patreon subscribers at minimum brad you got to introduce our guests i do yes and so as people know you know darkroom episodes uh we bring in somebody who knows more about this subject than us you know we we do a bunch of research and do our best to present you guys the full story of the of the subject and then we do the dark rooms we bring in somebody who uh knows this subject better sometimes just differently than us but but we always bring in somebody who can who can who can uh 
make things more interesting, who can dig into that rabbit hole from deeper than we can. I like the metaphor of the dark room in the sense that uh, we're trying to bring these profiles we do to life. So we're in the dark room. We've got a picture of somebody, but maybe it's just a photo negative. And we we have somebody who's going to come in and help us actually print the the photo in a a different way. Yeah. Yeah, And I I think in this case, it's it's a it's a it's a perfect it's perfect. Um, We have the great. Uh, Tommy Cowan, uh, who is a graduate of the University of Amsterdam in religious studies, which is interesting and is going to be is going to be key to this whole conversation, actually thinking about this in terms of religious studies, Burroughs in terms of religion. What does that even mean? Right. Um, We're going to talk about it. Um, Studied under the legendary. Oh, here's another mispronunciation I'm going to make. But I know I'm familiar with this man, uh, the great uh, Ruther Hanegraaff. Is that right? Okay, he's not, close he, enough. Yeah. He's, he's okay, right. okay, 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 yeah, right. okay. Close. Um, and and that was that that was that was Tommy's advisor. He he he's a guy who literally wrote the handbook of Western es- esotericism. Um, so fascinating. Um, Tommy is currently uh, an editor for Correspondences, which is the journal for the study of esotericism. Right. So this is like this is this is the some of our Kevin and I's favorite subjects to talk about in the academic context is being taken seriously in an intellectual format. Um, very cool journal. Um. And he, uh, importantly for us, Tommy is the author of a number of papers, specifically the two that I think, well, the two that I'm aware of that are maybe most relevant for us are, are one called uh, What Most People Would Call Evil, The Archontic Spirituality of William S. Burroughs, and Devils in the Ink, William, S., William Burroughs, uh, Brian Geisen, and Geometry as a Method for Accessing Intermediary Beings. So these, I don't know. Mm, this sounds, uh, <laughs> I don't know. It sounds pretty light. We really try to go hard on this show. So I don't know, Brad. No, mm. just those titles alone get me all, get me all, get me all. Goosed. Yeah, this is so yeah. okay. Wonderful. All right, I'm, I'm in. Mm. Um. So, so Tommy, thank you so much for coming on and, and sharing your time with us. We really do appreciate this. Um. I think the audience is going to dig this, and and honestly, this is even if they don't, it's edifying for me. I'm excited about this. So, um. Maybe we could start, uh, maybe a cool place to start would just be, okay, so I said the title of that second paper, Devils in the Ink, William Burroughs, Brian Geisen, and Geometry as a Method for for Accessing Intermediary Beings. What is an intermediary being? Uh, well, that's an excellent question. <laughs> okay. Um, I, I would say the the scholarship where I take that term from is uh, an article by another uh, esotericism scholar named Egil Asprim, who is uh, he's a professor uh, in Sweden, and he he just became the uh, the lead editor for Aries, the journal for the study of esotericism. Oh, okay. So he, he's a very important figure in esotericism studies, and the the intermediary being as we would define it is uh, an entity that has the ability to travel between worlds, let's say. So traveling between the physical and the metaphysical or the the natural and supernatural spheres, but also is a contact point for magical practitioners or mystical practitioners in attaining knowledge of the supernatural, but also accessing various powers that are inherent to the supernatural realm as well. So a a, a waypoint sort of uh, as well if that makes sense yeah would yes. <laughs> would iwas from from we just did this epic crowley episode crowley's iwas figure constitute one of these most certainly mm. the yeah i would say i mean it, 
we could we could use words such as ghosts or demons or things like that, but gods, um, mm-hmm. disembodied spirits, uh, things contacted by various sort of mediums and the things like elf, that. Absol- absolutely. The- the elf machines, McKenna's elf machines, sounds like that sure. could be could be one, right? Okay, so so it's sort he's, of an umbrella. He's describing term. our he's describing our art of darkness interns. Yeah, <laughs> That's they're right. always busy. They're always working, <laughs> working behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Okay, no, I think I think that's helpful because I wanted to. I think that's gonna that's gonna help us have an entryway point to entry point to a couple of maybe places where this conversation will go, um, because. Um, for people who listened to our original episode on Burroughs, and if you haven't, it, it's probably worth after this going back to listening to listening to it. I mean, it's way back in the archives. It's the first episode we did. So if if you're newish to Art of Darkness, you might have missed that one. Um, I think it's it's really relevant here to the whole Burroughs spiritual Burroughs spirituality. Um, one thing we talked about in that episode is this idea that Burroughs, who he, you know he said it about himself, was. Um, possessed or infected or whatever we want to say with something he referred to as the ugly spirit so this would is this that's an example of an intermediary being right absolutely and exactly what he thought that spirit was evolves over time and takes on various types of forms not just in his writing but in his personal belief system uh, so it's it's hard to nail down exactly what he means by that, but he believed it, he believed he was literally possessed by some type of uh, external sentient disembodied being. Mm. And and this is the thing that he blamed the the murder or manslaughter of of Joan Vollmer on the spirit, right? Eventually, yes. Okay, so that's so sort of post hoc. How it must have been that terrible, you ugly spirit that did this to me. Yeah, it gets pieced together in a in a detective uh, sort of way. Interesting. Yeah, reminds well, me of uh, that moment in Fear and Loathing where he spills the cocaine. Look at what God did right. to us, man. <laughs> it's a little bit, <laughs> a, little like bit yeah. a little bit of mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. I think yeah. it's probably a little more sophisticated than that, but yeah. Well, mm-hmm. and I think, I mean, you look at the 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 Burroughs' life. I mean, uh, if you are willing to accept the proposition that these intermediary beings do exist and that a person can be possessed by something. I think Burroughs is probably a pretty good candidate, right? I mean, uh, to not even be metaphysical, I mean, he was possessed by junk, for instance, right? He he's a person who's you know been who's been possessed by things. Um, so it, it to me, it feels like if there are intermediary beings and they can possess people from time to time, uh, it seems like a pretty good candidate to me. Um, <laughs> it's it's pretty interesting. I mean, then the question for me is. Um, and we're going to talk a little bit in the after dark about some some magical practices that Burroughs uh, used somewhat in this context and maybe maybe a little bit outside of this context. But the question that got me thinking, I, I was listening to a talk he's talking where he was talking about this thing called the wishing machine. And it got me thinking about the ugly spirit um, and his career as a writer, this whole thing where he became a writer quite late, though he be- was quite prolific once he got started. Um did he is there some kind of comparison we can make to like this idea that he maybe unwittingly sort of made a deal with the devil? I put that in quotation marks, right? The devil means whatever you want it to mean, I guess. But is, is there a way we can look at his career and his life in that way? 
that's one of the most controversial questions, I think, to the, the Burroughs mystique, because uh, very famously in his introduction to the book Queer, which was this unfinished novel that he started in the 50s, uh, but it wasn't published until 1985. He writes an introduction for it in, in 85. And in the introduction, uh, he says that he would never have become a writer if it had not been for Joan's death. Mm-hmm. Right. So if, if he had not accidentally killed his wife. And he, and he blames this, on, he blames her death on a spirit eventually, the other spirit. Mm-hmm. So, and the reason why that's controversial is for. I would say not not just reasons of criticism, but for political reasons as well, because there it, there's a lot of resistance to Burroughs generally for I mean, for a lot of reasons. But th- this Jones death, this event is one of those things. And uh, and I've, I've encountered this personally when I talk about Burroughs sometimes. Uh, is that people think p- that Burroughs should not be read or certainly that Burroughs should not be taught in a university setting or taken seriously as an artist because to do that is to uh, is to sort of validate this this type of crime or this type of tragedy or to sort right. of give consent to to this violence mm-hmm. um, but at at the same time I you know I, I think that, Whatever conclusion we come to about what happened to Joan, um, this was a form of trauma that he experienced, the profound, the pro- probably the most traumatic thing he experienced in his life. And trauma is absolutely uh, an important part of creating art, I think, and, mm-hmm. and, a, and an important response to trauma is artistic practice. And Burroughs says this himself. Um, and, I, and I think the trauma that we see in Burroughs is part of his appeal, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're, 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 you're actually hitting on like a number of our running themes on this show. I mean, because I mean, our Mm -hmm. sort of idea is if you throw Burroughs out because he killed his wife, you can't, so now you can't read him. Um, I, I sort of understand the, the, the beginnings of that sentiment, but it's like, okay, so what behavior, what, where is the line for something that someone has done? that puts them into that territory. Okay, so if it's murder, okay, well then you throw out all the murders. Okay. So but, but where does it start if you um got into a fight mm, and made a podcast. Yeah, right. It, it, right. Oh. So it, it's yeah, exactly. <laughs> it gets it gets challenging because I think when you look at the life of practically any artist, you can find something where it's like, yeah, that is not condonable behavior. <laughs> <laughs> we can't have people doing that on a regular basis, right? So, so on that front, he has he he can't to me he can't get thrown out because of that. It can be it certainly can and should be part of the con uh, of the story, especially when he talks about it as this. Um, it's really the moment that he's born as a writer, so it's important. I don't look for my moral compass uh, from artists, from <laughs> probably, actors. Probably a good idea. From, I really don't. No. Uh, yeah. so that's me, mm-hmm. <laughs> but I understand there's, there's some nuance here, uh, Tommy, and that I could understand why in academia, there would be some, some pushback. It is somewhat bizarre to me too, that you could go down to, to Barnes and Noble, uh, and get your, uh, your magazine with the Kardashians and then stroll down the, the way and pick up, um, right. Ginsburg 
yeah. uh, who who had all sorts of uh, predilections that maybe we don't approve of. So there is there's a lot of politics and strangeness that goes on. Uh, and yet, if we throw these fellows out and the ladies, in the case of mm-hmm. bad behavior, there, uh, we we have we shoot uh, the art history and their influences full of holes. And it becomes kind of like the people who influenced, who they influenced, rather. Right. Um, so we believe in studying it. We believe in, <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, I yeah. don't think we pull too many punches on our show in terms of, you know, calling a, a monster a monster. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. Right. Mm. Yeah. And, and the the sort of the other thing I feel like we were starting to talk about, and I've, I've heard you, Tommy, talk about this, and it's something that I want to, maybe this is a good time to 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 pull it in Burroughs sort of quasi maybe accepted um he certainly is at barn you can still buy him at barnes and noble but the one thing that the he, he's been he has been i think neutered in a way and maybe not in the way that people might immediately think it's he hasn't been neutered of like the the drug stuff or but but everybody kind of pretends that he doesn't have a spiritual or religious or mystical or magical dimension. It's sort of, and we've noticed this on other subjects we've dove into too, or we, we have this funny, we've accidentally covered like 10 or 15 people who converted to Catholicism late in their life. And it's sort of, nobody really says anything about it in the biographical material. It's just like, Oh yeah, the by the way, faith. Right. Rattling, <laughs> rattling my beads. Yeah. Kevin's one of them. Theater of and, the and, mind. And, mm-hmm. and, yeah. and, and it's this mm-hmm. thing where it's sort of like the, the biographical material is like, oh, by the way, they became Catholics. And it's like, well, hold on. That's a pretty big that's a pretty big commit to 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 buy into a religious or spiritual system. We can't throw it away. And with Burroughs, is it's so at least to the conventional mind, um, you know, born in the who grew up in the Judeo-Christian environment. His spirituality and religion is weird, I I think is fair to say for most people and co- kind of complicated um, and uh, and sort of doesn't fit into our spreadsheet of you're a Buddhist, you're a Hindu, you're a Christian, you're a you're a, you're a Jew. And it seems like so it just gets sort of pushed off to the side. And your work has been really, I think, does an amazing job of putting it back, forcing it back in. Like you can't talk about this stuff. What can we say about, and maybe you have to say what point in his life, but what can we start to say about what Burroughs's spiritual conception is? What does he think reality? I mean, this, I know it's a huge question, but start wherever, I guess. <laughs> what does Burroughs, what does Burroughs think of all of this? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. Um, I think that if you, read Cities of the Red Knight, which came out in the early 80s, I believe it was 81 mm-hmm. or something like that. Um, it begins with what I would call a polytheistic manifesto, where he uh, decries what he calls the one God universe, the OGU. Although I believe one, I'm not sure if one God universe appears right in Cities of the Red Knight. I think that's maybe more from uh, uh the Place of Dead Roads, which was the sequel to Cities of the Red Knight. But it, it's very it's very polytheistic, and it's about bringing polytheism back as a, a, genu- a genuinely respectable form of, of cosmological thinking. Uh, as to that, this is a later work of his, right? So as to how he arrives at this polytheistic manifesto, I think is a long trajectory. 
but so if we go back to something like his childhood, I, I think it would be important to note that he was around weird religion since he was a little kid. Uh, so for his mother, for example, had an interest in spiritualism. Oh, she okay. supposedly had prophetic dreams mm-hmm. uh, and things like this. Uh, he's uh, he supposedly was taught how to call the toads by one of the house servants that they had. So where you would go, there was a toad that apparently lived under a rock in his backyard. And Mm -hmm. uh, this servant could uh, go outside and make this inaudible humming noise, kind of like a, get this toad to come out. Interesting. So he's, he's kind of around weird spirituality since he's a little boy. And so I think he grew up in a house where uh, even though, you know, Possibly we'd say he's from a Christian community and a Christian society for that matter. Um, It's, it's not, it's not, he's not firmly in this monotheistic uh, tradition. He's, he's always been sort of fringe and he, even the, the first thing that he ever had published, I believe he was 15 years old. um, And he has this published in his high school newspaper is, a book review on uh, mind control lessons. So he, there is a, uh, uh, yeah. I forget that title of this book, but it's, it's about mesmerism and mind control and telepathy and things like right. that, which is sort of a lifelong interest of his. Mm-hmm. Um, that seems like that's like, that's sort of black magic a little bit, right? I mean, yeah, yeah I've noticed this in his straight, his strain of things is when he gets into his magical practice, it isn't always about, uh, uh, it isn't, the things that he's maybe trying to accomplish with it aren't necessarily what people would think of as white magic. Right. I mean, he's interested. So yeah, that's interesting that right off the bat, he's like, Oh, um, I read a book about how to control people's minds. <laughs> it's 15 years old. It's a, a I, I think unsettling. We, one thing that's happening on the show too, is we're at least I am beginning to appreciate just how widespread spiritualism was at this period in time and how, there's a direct through line between there to where we are now, even, but certainly through to the 60s. Uh, yeah, and it gets, I, it gets, I find that fascinating. Yeah, it gets posed as kind of a historical footnote or oddity. And then you find out it's like, no, actually, it's like sort of adjacent to all of these other things. It's sort of right there all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Lincoln, Mary Todd Lincoln mm-hmm. in the White House, right? Yeah. They, yeah. they were doing seances and things. So yeah. uh, very interesting. Hmm. Yeah, so, yeah. So, okay. So Burroughs kind of starts there. How does he get from there to, you know, believing in or or, or talking about archons? We, we, we're we going to have to talk about archons. We actually just right. had a discussion about archons in the Telegram chat the other day. Somebody was like, does anybody know what archons are? And we were all like, <laughs> right, ah, right. Not really. <laughs> <laughs> all I said was watch Twin Peaks season three. It's about okay. uh, the war between the archons. Uh, you could yeah. you could take it to look that way. Okay, this is awesome. Okay, Tommy, what what it what is an archon? Yeah, or at least how Burroughs would have saw it. Mm-hmm. I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. Well, so ar- archon is a, a word from ancient Gnosticism. Uh, so you know, late antiquity, sort of in the in the fringe Christian Gnostic sects there. And uh, we have this concept of the demiurge, right, which is the evil God that creates the physical universe to imprison the soul of man in, a, in human bodies. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, but the demiurge is usually a composite being that has many facets or many other lesser 
gods that that compose the larger demiurge and these are often called archons and they function as barriers to transcendence right so the in the gnostic worldview the true will of a human being is to transcend the physical and enter into uh, a, a primordial oneness with the Godhead, but the archons are invested in blocking that predilection of man. Mm. Um, and Bur- uh, Burroughs doesn't actually use the word archon, but he, he is interested in Gnosticism. He, he, in interviews, he often said that he was a Manichaean, mm. which, uh, which is an ancient religion that has a lot of intersections with, with Gnosticism. Mm. Uh, it's, called, it's called Manichaeanism because it was started by a prophet named Mani. Mm-hmm. And that's very like that, that correct me if I'm wrong, that, that, that religion sort of, um, for sort of pushes to the forefront, this idea that there is like an eternal battle between good and evil occurring. Right. At a, yeah. Okay. Correct. Yeah. And it, and there would, it would be resolved at some mm. point. Right. So there's this, yeah. there's this idea that the, the physical world isn't something that you would always have to come back to. Like the battle would be won or lost at some point. Right, right. The, I think of the last se- scene of the first season of True Detective where he Russ Cole is, comes out of the hospital and he looks up at the stars and he's sort of like, it looks like the dark darkness is winning, but at one point it was all dark. I feel like that was a very sort of Manichaean moment. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I think uh, it's, it's been argued that Burroughs had an influence on that first season of True Detective, also because some of the some of the things that McConaughey's uh, character says are actually uh, they're actually quote not quotes but like almost quotes from uh, Apuk is here, which was a, a book a Burroughs book from 1979. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah, interesting. So so Burroughs Burroughs whether or not he says archons, he believes in. He he has a notion. He, apparently, at least functionally, he's kind of believes in the, this concept that we're being repressed and controlled and restricted from some sort of transcendence. And and from your essay, and I'd kind of picked this up bef- some things up before. I mean, you can start to identify things that he would have maybe assigned as an archon. So we get into this whole language as a virus thing. He he would have. I, is there a difference between the statement language is a virus and the idea that language might be an archon? Is that the same thing for him? That's a good question. Um, so he says it's a virus because it replicates itself and it, mm. and it has this, it has this sentient ability to use the human body as a replication apparatus. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but a virus gets applied to, uh, I, I think, you know, you, we could use that as sort of synonyms in, in the Barogian case, virus and archon. Mm-hmm. Um, and he uses virus uh, in a lot of different ways, not just uh, pertaining to language, but also pertaining to drug addiction, which was a theme that uh, runs throughout the Burroughs corpus, uh, as well as uh, sex. Too. And you'll notice that these things, which he calls viruses, are, are they're functions of the human body. Right. So, and, and they're things that to Burroughs keep you bound to the body. So your your desire for sex, your desire for drugs, your desire to speak and to communicate are are part of the the system of imprisonment that's been imposed on you by this this bodily matrix. 
right? So being in the body, the body itself is this prison then. I mean, those those things are very difficult to overcome in any way, right? Especially language. I mean, you get down to language. Language doesn't even feel, sex feels at least like a compulsion or something, right? Drugs feels like, a, language doesn't even feel like a compulsion. <laughs> what are you talking about? We've done a thousand <laughs> hours of audio. <laughs> I didn't want to do it though, Kevin. Bro, are yeah, you not addicted kidding. to Twitter? The, yeah, Twitter yeah, is an archon. Oh, hmm. Twitter's, if anything is an archon, Twitter does. I'm going to push sure. back here, Brad. Okay, <laughs> no, fair but, enough. Okay, no, no, you, but you're, that is interesting. It's an interesting point you're making. Hmm. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, but, but he would have, so, he, okay. So he's got language. In this, and then the, he, so part of what he's trying to do then identifying, say, all these things that are sort of keeping you imprisoned, they're, they're localized in the body and they're localized outside of the body too, I imagine. But like, so he then views, this is where, this is why you can't dismiss his spirituality slash religion, whatever you want to call it from his actual work, because it, correct me if I'm wrong, Tom, he starts to see at some point, he starts to see his writing as battle against this archon the, the archons and specifically the language uh, language as an archon is that is that fair to say is that a way to put that you could put that correct so he essentially tries to take the mechanisms of bodily imprisonment and deconstruct them so that they can be used against themselves and this yeah. is this is what this desi the desire to do this is what leads to his adoption of the cut-up method, which was supposedly quote-unquote invented by Brian Geisen. Mm -hmm. uh, but we, I mean, we see this in sex as well. So Burroughs had a negative opinion of sex in a lot of ways, but he also there's also lots of depictions of what we might call sex magic in the books. And sex is a method that the characters use in order to perform astral travel, methods mm -hmm. for escaping the body. So anything which is used to imprison one in the body can also be used against the archon in a way and, and evade the 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 blocking mechanism, let's say. Right, right. Interesting. Yeah, I'm remembering in the cities of the Red Knight trilogy, there was a lot of sex magic in there. And I didn't quite that was the that was always the one part of that, especially the first volume. It was always the one part of the bit that I didn't quite understand what he was doing. Like, I'm not sure why all this is in there, but this start, this does start to make sense, right? Because that being sort of his last, I don't think that was the last set of books that he wrote, but I felt like it was maybe his last big, big artistic statement was the, 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 the cities of the dead wrote uh, cities of the red Knights trilogy. So he's sort of, pulling together maybe something approximating a final articulation of this idea but but it wasn't that he was just trying to present it as an idea he was actually trying to do it right like he was it wasn't just like hey you can make language into a weapon it was this book is a weapon against the archons right <laughs> that's my, my argument yeah the the books don't just have esoteric content they are esoteric rituals through not just him writing them, but you reading them as well. Right. This is what he, he believed. Yeah, that's. I think that's fascinating. And yeah, yeah. wow. <laughs> and, and well, and this is, and, and I think if you kind of zoom out from that, I, I think you can see in Burroughs' case, and you can also see in many other artists' case, where they actually are, even though their work is maybe not ostensibly religious, you can see their work as 
an extension or an accessory of their religious perspective, right? And I guess, and it's interesting, you know, this is why it's, your position is interesting, right? So you're, you're a religious studies scholar, you're positioned within this world of esos esotericism. Um, why, why is academia so in the sort of institutional institutional art archon uh why is it so why does it do you have ideas thoughts about why it struggles so much to grapple with the religiosity of the people who are making this stuff that is apparently under examination and i was a little bit rambly but i hope i got to a point there <laughs> it, it's a great question i don't necessarily have a great answer for it i think there's a lot of things going on in early 20th century or and mid 20th century uh, literary criticism, there was this huge push against literary biography in general. Mm -hmm. And they would hate uh, us, Kevin. That's <laughs> my work they, too. They <laughs> do hate us. It's not they would, they do. Use your active verbs, Brad. You're a writer. Active yeah, verbs. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Right. Uh, but that that is that is very interesting, isn't it, Tommy? There's a sort of dialectical materialism and and postmodernism modernism in the academy. And it's sort of it's also just sort of de classe, isn't it? Uh, somehow, which uh, I think is ridiculous. And mm -hmm. I, in a funny way, I think it's that class of, of people almost a little bit embarrassed that hitherto their class of person was consumed by this stuff. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, that's very, we just, we don't want to talk about how, how grandma called spirits into the house uh, that much. So yeah, yeah it's, it, yeah. Let's, it's better to forget about that. Well, well uh, I, hmm. yeah, no, I think that's, I think that's really interesting. I mean, I think it also, Tommy, just so for a little context, Kevin and I both have, we're both MFAs, right? So, you know, in a past life, um, Mufas. Yeah. Muf <laughs> and so, so the one thing that's interesting thing is I, I think you can't separate this sort of, of taking the spirituality, taking the religiosity away from the, the artist understudy away from, there's also when you get into sort of into, you know, out of undergraduate and into the, like a real academia, there also is a, a weird lack of enthusiasm for the art itself. So you don't find a lot of passion about a specific book or a specific, it, it's very analytical and very, it can, it can, it, it leads to it being to me sort of boring at times. I mean, you can find patches of it. You'll find people who still re retain their enthusiasm. Um, oh, there's a great tweet just the other day where it's like one of these tweets where it's set up where it's like a conversation between two people or whatever. And I wish I could remember it exactly. And but one of it was like, oh, so you're a PhD in literature. What's your favorite book? And the response was, I don't like any of them. <laughs> <laughs> and it felt and it does feel like that Aww. sometimes it's like don't we so sad i thought we liked all this stuff like i thought that's why we were you know um and i i wonder if it's kind of part and parcel where it's sort of like you're 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 so you're putting things under the microscope so much that you forget to have feelings about it or something yeah um i want to you know there's one thing that I came across in your research that I, I definitely want to, well, maybe we could, there's a couple things I want to make sure that we hit. Um, and one of them is super relevant to the attempt at doing a profile of Burrow, a biographical profile of Burrow's that we did. And we kind of glossed over it. Um, what can you tell us about the famous Beat Hotel? Yeah, so this 
was uh, is a, a hotel in in the center of Paris. I believe it's in the. I don't speak French, but I'll I'll attempt to mispronounce some things here. <laughs> oh, good. You're you're, the... you're you're perfect fit for this show then. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> wonderful. I believe it is in the sixth arrondissement. Uh, so it's like right in the heart of Paris on the left bank, uh, very close to the Seine River, very close to uh, Notre Dame Cathedral mm. and very close to the Sorbonne. Okay. And uh, it, 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 th- I've gotten some conflicting information as to when the building was actually built. I've seen sources that say 15th century, other sources say 16th century. Um it, at, it had at some points been owned by various aristocratic persons, uh, but by the 20th century had been converted into a hotel. Uh, as far as I'm aware, the in the 20th century, the hotel did not have a name. It was just known hmm. by the address. It was uh, 9 uh, Gilecoeur, which was the, huh. the street, Rue Gilecoeur, uh, which means uh, lay of the heart. Uh, but it's it's believed that that was actually a uh, uh what, what am i looking for here that that was derived from a previous name uh that was a, actually a different meaning uh i believe it was like uh gilet cue which means like lay of the cook and then it got <laughs> it got degraded over time into cur which means huh. heart so it's just yeah. kind of like a weird linguistic thing uh and this was uh, it, it's in the center of what we could call a, a bohemian type of community there. And um, be, the, it was called the Beat Hotel. And I've also got conflicting information as to who came up with the name. A lot of people, a lot of sources will say Gregory Corso, the poet who was friends with Ginsburg and Burroughs, mm-hmm. uh, is the first person to say this. And Corso, Ginsburg, and Peter Orlovsky, all friends of Burroughs, they arrive in Paris and begin their tenure at the Beat Hotel in 1957. Okay. And this is why Burroughs uh, gets there in January of 1958. Yeah, and for people to sort of think, 57 is the same year On the Road is published. So this is where, this is this is kind of where we are in Beatnik history. If Yeah, okay. Correct. It's They get there in October 57, which is one month after On the Road is published. And interestingly, Kerouac is the only major beat that never set foot in the hotel. And it's probably because he was busy managing this newfound success that he had in the States. Mm -hmm. Um, But this to give people an idea of what this hotel was like, it is, uh, I believe it's called a Class 13 hotel, according to the Parisian Code which means that you only have to satisfy very minimum health and safety standards in order to operate. Right. So love that. That's wonderful. Class 13. (laughs) Perfect. So there's 12 levels above it. Theoretically. Right. That all get nicer. Um, (laughs) But uh, to, to give you an example of what we're dealing with here, um, there was one shared toilet per floor. Ooh. And it was, and oh, it's, it, it's one of those squatters. It's one of the hole in the floor kind of yeah. as well. <laughs> yeah. Whoa, oh, boy. Yeah. Wasn't, you know, it yeah. smelled crazy. In there. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Oh, boy. But it's very inexpensive. 
which is why they liked it. You know, the Burroughs and Ginsburg at the time, they didn't really have jobs other than just trying to be writers. Uh, Burroughs got uh, an allowance, a small allowance from his family because they were somewhat well off, but, um, you know, they needed someplace cheap. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as well, the the uh, patron of the hotel, the proprietor of the hotel, I guess we could say, uh, was a woman named uh, Madame Rachou, and she liked artists and writers, and she had a, a fondness for young Bohemian people, uh, and so she was very good at keeping the police out. She turned uh, she turned a blind eye to things like drugs and orgies. Mm-hmm. Oh, and boy. things like that. And it's even said that she let people pay their rent with paintings or manuscripts. Hmm. Oh, this uh, is very so much like uh, Hotel Chelsea. Chelsea Hotel, yeah, Chelsea Hotel. yeah, yeah which we did an episode right. on yeah. Hmm, yeah, in New York. Hmm. Cool. Right. So, yeah, th- it, in, in many ways, this was an ideal place for, for the beatniks, quote unquote. Sure. Um, and I, I think what's, in, what's most interesting about it in terms of Burroughs history um, it was a couple of different things. First of all, this is where him and Brian Geisen become friends and begin a series of esoteric experiments there that had a huge influence on his work. Uh, this is where uh, Geisen is the one who coins the word ugly spirit, which is the the name that Burroughs adopts for this demonic possession. Yeah, didn't he, wasn't, was he, was Geisen channeling that or something? It was in like a trance state or something, right? Correct. Yes, okay. he's, he's, he channeled it. Yeah. Um, uh, Naked Lunch uh, is assembled in the Beat Hotel for publication. Uh, that's where yeah, Naked Lunch had, uh, was being written. Uh, ever since the the early mid '50s, so it'd been a long time coming. But when it finally gets accepted for publication and assembled as a final manuscript, that happens in the Beat Hotel. Oh, interesting. Okay, cool. Uh, cut up, supposedly, quote unquote, yeah. is invented in the Beat Hotel. So th- yeah. a lot of a lot of uh, all of the things that are most identifiable with Burroughs' career as an artist kind of happened first in the Beat Hotel. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. And um, there were some other hangers around. Uh, Henri Michaud as well, right? Correct. He lived just on the other side of the block, apparently. Oh, and okay. Th- there's an incredibly important figure um, who lived nearby named uh, Jean-Jacques Labelle. And he was French uh, by birth and nationality, but he had studied in, uh, he'd gone to university, uh, I believe, in New York. And so he spoke uh, English very fluently. He had a total American accent. They didn't believe he was French when hmm. he first met the Beats. And he was a great networker uh, in the Beat Hotel, and he was able to connect Beat artists with all other type of legendary French artists. And uh, Henri uh, Michaud was one of them. He lived just around the block. Him and LaBelle okay. were friends, and he was able to bring Michaud around and hang out with the guys and stuff like that. If I may, it looks like Jean-Jacques LaBelle is still among us. Whoa, uh, really? Believe it or not. Yeah, it's active, you know, present tense, Brad. He's still around. Yeah, huh, surprising. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Must, be, must be quite old. Yeah, yeah. It's that uh, that good, uh, clean French living, 
Red yeah, wine. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Cigarettes. Stay in stay in, in chapter in uh, section thirteen hotels. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Very hearty immune system. Yeah, Talking about sure. viruses. Yeah. Uh, v- very interesting, Tommy. Yeah. Yeah. So so this is where now Burroughs clearly had an interest in what you know we might just generally call sort of esoteric subjects, but this is where in the Beat Hotel with Geisen is where we at least see an evolution in his relationship with magical practice and things of that nature. Right. Cause Geisen was, Geisen was, Geisen was in deep. I was doing some research on him today and he is one of the most fascinating figures, just sort of a, this sort of an everywhere kind of guy. I mean, he was in the, 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 the sort of capital S surrealist group with, uh, with Picasso and Dali and all these other figures. And then he's sort of bridging that into the beat, into the beat generation guys with this, this, you know, sort of famous relationship with Burroughs. What, I mean, we don't have to go in depth into any one of them, but what are a couple of, what are, what is the flavor of the, the, the magical practice or practices that he's sort of sharing with Burroughs or that he and Burroughs are kind of learning together? What does that, what does that look like? I think there's many things that they're doing. And I think probably the, the, biggest theme that we see in all of them are their forms of hyper concentration. Um, what I would call hyper people have also used the term over concentration. I don't necessarily mm. like that term because it implies that you're doing it too much or something. Right. Right. Um, for, I think the most important uh, <clears throat> form of this would be painting meditation. So, uh, Burroughs became very interested in a style of painting that Geisen was, uh, quote unquote, inventing at the time called Ecrature painting. And this painting was supposedly derivative of uh, Islamicate magic because Geisen had found a curse packet uh, in a restaurant of his uh, that it was a curse directed against him, which he claims caused him to lose the restaurant. Wow. And the curse packet was essentially Arabic writing aligned in a grid. And so this idea of writing in a grid was incredibly influential to him. And he developed an entire style of abstract painting, which were essentially these form of calligraphic grids that they would use for meditational exercises in order to induce mystical states. Mm. Uh, But this would be combined with other things. So it would be combined with drugs like hashish uh, and mescaline, uh, but would also be combined uh, with things like Sufi trance music uh, from the village of Jajuka, which Brian Geisen had recorded. Mm-hmm. Uh, could also be combined with stroboscopic light, which was something they got interested in. So I think really the innovative things that they were doing there were the various combinations of meditative techniques that they were layering on top of each other to try and enhance the intensity of these altered states of consciousness. Right. Yeah. I mean, you're really pulling together different. Yeah. The, the Sufi trance music with, with mescaline with, with, yeah, that's fascinating. So the painting that um, you called it, I'm going to mispronounce it. Ecriture. What was it? I think so. Yeah. I don't Okay, something French, like that. Yeah. So, so this yeah. is the sort of like, it, it, it sort of borrows from calligraphy, but it's not, it's you're not actually writing in language, right? Like you can't read it and it's, it doesn't say something specific, right? Well, that's a great question. So 
there there are videos. There's well, I shouldn't say video. There's film of mm. Geisen making paintings where he is writing things in English, oh, but then okay. he's turning them 90 degrees and writing over them perpendicular to encrypt it or make it unreadable. Oh, it's like sigil magic a bit. Yes, very yeah. much so. Mm. Uh, but then there's there were also experiments he did where he totally got rid of language and was trying to get to these abstract glyphs that were a sort of universal language. Uh, there, there's a famous story where uh, Timothy Leary had sent a bunch of psilocybin to Tangier for Burroughs, I believe, but Geisen you know, gets the package mm. and decides to just do all of it uh, <laughs> in, or, in order for, a, for one epic painting. Mm, why not? Yeah. yeah. Hey, Timmy Leary coming up very soon. We on, are doing an episode uh, on him next month. Yeah. yeah. Artofdarkpod.com coming up. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So uh, go on, Tommy. Yeah. So he he took he took the mushrooms. Did did anything uh, productive come of it? He did a bunch of painting, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> like you do. Yeah. Why not, yeah. man? That sounds uh, interesting. So okay. So he's got this this relationship with Geisen, which uh, once you kind of scratch the surface of of Burroughs's career. He Geisen comes up. I think at one point, doesn't Burroughs call Geisen the only man he ever respected or something like that? <laughs> right. Yeah. So that was that was his big eulogy to Geisen, I think, when mm. Geisen passed in the 80s. Sure, yeah. sure. Um, yeah, fascinating. And yeah, Geisen, Geisen is a guy where we will probably do an episode on him at some point. He's just sort of one of these fascinating figures. And again, one of these we occasionally come across people in the show who you realize you dig into their life a little bit and you realize like, Oh, they were actually sort of this fluid that, that passed through the 20th century. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's like they, yeah. they moved, they, they took what was going on here and they brought it over here and they took that right. and brought it over to this other scene. And you Our realize really cynical that, theory that there are only 25,000 actual humans alive at a given yeah. time. Yeah. Brian uh, Geisen was definitely <laughs> one of those people. Yeah. Of course sure. I'm joking, but it's yeah. very interesting. The more we dig into this show, it's like this person knew that person mm -hmm. who knew this person who made this art, who influenced this person. It's a wonderful mm -hmm. Uh, thing to realize yeah it's all mm -hmm. connected mm -hmm. now we're getting close to our hour i want to um there is one thing i definitely wanted to hit because it's a sort of pet uh interest of mine um and reading in your work about the about burroughs's possible participation in this the whole 20 uh, 2012 phenomena so um is folks who everybody knows that there was this whole sort of kind of hysteria slash fascination slash you know popular fad phenomena where 2012 is going to be something akin to the quote the end of the world and uh whether that was a positive thing a negative thing was left kind of to individual interpretations that then that was based on at least if not based on was at least reflected in the mind calendar um and this was also sort of maybe popularized or brought to the fore by Terrence McKenna's time wave theory, which we've talked about in depth on an episode. But you make the case that um, there's a reasonable argument that Burroughs may have sort of initiated this idea. Now, he did not initiate the idea of a Mayan calendar, but that he might have brought this to popular consciousness as a, oh, oh 2012 is some kind of singularity point can can you talk a little bit about that why why 
why might you what is the argument that Burroughs sort of sort of bolstered this and brought it back to public consciousness? Yeah, so we we know that Terrence McKenna was very influential to the 2012 movement with this uh, 1975 book, The Invisible Landscape, where they go to uh, the Putumayo region in Colombia looking for ayahuasca. I believe they end up finding a bunch of mushrooms and doing lots of mushrooms and things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we we know that Burroughs was very influential to that book. Uh, the Burroughs and Ginsburg collaboration, the Jahe letters, is cited in the Invisible Landscape as an influence. And uh, Burroughs had been to the Putumayo in the 1950s looking for ayahuasca, uh, which is wh- why the McKenna brothers go there. Yeah. And w- the Mayan calendar uh, takes on uh, various important guises uh in in burroughs works it's um it's arguably present in naked lunch uh but it's certainly in in other works like the soft machine uh but it's also in a book from 1960 called the exterminator where burroughs says that uh the end of the mayan calendar is the end of insect time and so insect is a synonym for the archon uh in burroughs so uh, definitely we see this idea of the end of the Mayan calendar being this radical shift in human consciousness. It exists in Burroughs before the McKenna's ever make, uh, or before, I would say before they develop their own concept of it. And knowing that Burroughs was so influential to that book, um, I think we can, we can draw a, a good line there. Uh, but also uh, maybe the most influential author in the 2012 movement was Jose Arguez, who also wrote about uh, the Mayan calendar in 2012, in 1975, the same year that the McKenna brothers uh, talk about 2012. And Arguez in 75 was teaching at Naropa University, which is also when Burroughs was teaching there. So there, I mean, there's a lot of, uh, and cites Jahe letters um, in uh, in his his seventy five book, the transformative vision. Interesting. So, do we think that Burroughs kind of came up with this idea from like an ayahuasca vision, or from? I know he studied at uh, the University of. Well, I'm not sure the name of the university in Mexico City with our under R H uh, under Barlow. Is it maybe a, maybe it's a combination of these things? But where where do we think he got this notion? So it's supposedly it's from Joan Volmer. It's from his common law wife. And the thing to hit on there is that both Volmer and Burroughs were very interested in telepathy, did their own telepathy experiments uh, between themselves, did experiments with Ginsburg. Ginsburg supposedly saw uh, Burroughs and Joan uh, have 50 percent accuracy through a deck of cards, apparently one time, which is kind of crazy. That is crazy. Uh, Yeah, all 52 cards. Um, And Joan had this theory that the Mayan calendar was a form of mind control in which the Maya elite were able to control the proletariats through the calendar. But and and there was a telepathic element to her theory of how the the symbolism inherent in the calendar is constructed 
restrictive of what makes it possible for you to conceive, controls how you conceive of time and what you see as possible for the human body to do. And if you and so the ayahuasca thing is connected to that because if you look at Burroughs' earliest references to ayahuasca in books like Junkie and Queer, which come before Naked Lunch, he is he says in those books that he's interested in ayahuasca because it supposedly gives you the power of telepathy. Um, So uh, definitely the, the idea of the Mayan calendar as mind control, as connected to telepathy exists before his trip to South America looking for ayahuasca. Um, Yeah. It's interesting too. I mean, I know people, um, people under the influence of ayahuasca do sometimes report encountering insect intermediary beings. Uh, and it's, it's pretty common. I don't think it's the most common reported experience, but it's, it's frequent, um, either insects or spiders or, um, praying mantises is a big one. There's a lot of visions of and visitations with, with praying mantis. So it wouldn't surprise me that he's pulling some of that fascinating. Well, that, oh, <laughs> I love this stuff. Um, I, I think we're kind of at the end of our hour. This is amazing. And there's like a million more threads we could pull. Um, again, we're going to we're going to for Patreon subscribers, we're going to dive a little bit deeper into maybe some specific or at least one specific uh Burroughs magical practice in the in the after dark. So please subscribe if you're not already and, and come join us. It's going to be a lot of fun. Yes, indeed. Yeah. yeah. Patreon.com slash art of dark pod. Can I ask Tommy a question before we uh take a break and then come back for the after dark? Okay, great. Tommy, how did you get into this stuff? How did you get into Burroughs and uh the occult or or whatever you want to call it? This sort of line of, to the point where you have are you are you pursuing a PhD? Uh, you have a, yes, he is. He nods. Okay, great. Yeah. Where did it all go wrong? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, I, I've always been interested in, in spirituality since I was a little boy, uh, in terms of the Burroughs element of it. I, I became very interested in the movie first, actually, before I read any Burroughs, the, the 1991 David Cronenberg movie, Naked Lunch, which I thought was really interesting it's not like any other movie i'd ever seen and it got me interested in reading burroughs read naked lunch first uh thought it was a wild ride to say the least then got into uh cities of the red knight and soft machine and things like that um when i was doing uh my master's degree my supervisor and my mentor at the time, Walter Hanakraf, who we mentioned uh, at the beginning of the pod, he's one of the most important scholars in esotericism studies. And he had written an article about the 2012 uh, phenomenon, uh, arguing that it comes from McKenna. But I kind of randomly noticed that the idea existed in Burroughs before it existed in McKenna. And so that gave me an idea for an article, to the, the article that I wrote, what most people would call evil. So I, I sort of jumped on the the Burroughs bandwagon in an opportunistic way to try and uh, you know generate some interest uh, in Burroughs as a maybe an underappreciated figure in in the history of the occult. Mm. Yeah, I mean, brilliant. Uh, yeah, mm. you make a great case, and and 
folks should seek out that article. What most, I'm sorry, say the title of it again, what most people, what most would call evil. What most people would call evil. What most people would call evil. It's fantastic. It's, I mean, if you, if you like this episode, it's, it's, uh, we, we kind of, uh, touched on a bunch of things that Tommy goes into much more depth on in a very fascinating way. It's, 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 uh, mind blowing. So, um, Tommy, is there anything, um, I guess as we kind of close this down, I mean, do you want to point our audience to anything, anything you want to say? Uh, what's going on, I guess, with correspondent, the correspondence's journal? Um, any, any, yeah. Yeah, sure. We have a special issue coming out soon, uh, which is being guest edited by uh, Tanya Cheadle and Christine Ferguson, who are two uh, esotericism study scholars, and it's on gender and esotericism. Interesting. So that yeah. that should be coming out. Uh, some of it's already come out on the on the website correspondencesjournal.com. Uh, but more more is forthcoming. And um, I I should have an, another article coming out about. It's interesting that you mentioned Twin Peaks because I have an article coming out about Burroughs and Twin Peaks. Oh, cool. Uh, probably Ooh. next year. Yeah. Ah. <laughs> cool. Oh, very, very good. Cool. Exciting. Yeah. yeah. There's a clear connection between Twin Peaks and Burroughs. Mm-hmm. I don't think that there's any. Ooh, I can't wait. Where, where is that going to be? Where is that going to be published? Do you know? Uh, the Supernatural Studies Journal. Ooh, <laughs> okay. cool! Okay. Wow, this is a whole world that's opening up to me. Uh, this yeah. academic uh, academic journals about this stuff. I love it. It's so yeah. fascinating. It's definitely a pet project for this show. Is to touch on this more weird, esoteric, uh, and I and we we really believe in the legitimacy of it. I think that that comes over. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. All yeah. right, I'm let's to let's come more. back. Brad, yeah, thank so, you for organizing yeah, this. Yeah, Tommy. Thank yeah, you absolutely. For on. Tommy, thank you so much for your time. We'll see you in a little bit. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right, Sorry. I'm going to go over here and get my Burroughs Attic machine. Ah, oh, God! <laughs> There's a bug. Oh, God! Oh, God. <laughs>